Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. In 1546, so over 1,500 years after Jesus Christ, the Roman Catholic Church held the Council of Trent in response to the Protestant Reformation. In session four, they list all the books included in the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, and they say this, But if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books, entire with all their parts, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately condemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema, that is, separated from the church or excommunicated. So this declaration of the Council of Trent is dogmatic in its authority and considered an infallible decree. To be a faithful Roman Catholic, you must believe it. Any disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church on an issue they claim infallibility is a big no-no. So essentially, you are going against the very truth of God from the Roman Catholic perspective. So this infallible decree applies to all the books of their canon. So the Protestants and Catholics agree on the entire New Testament canon. So that's 27 books. Protestants and Catholics also agree on 39 books of the Old Testament, and these books are the same content found in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Bible of Judaism. And so the Hebrew Bible is referred to by Jews as the Tanakh, and the Tanakh groups the books differently than Protestant Bibles. The the Tanakh is consistently referred to as having 22 or 24 books, depending on the way you combine them. But the content is the exact same as the Protestant Old Testament. So just to be clear, the Protestant Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Tanakh, have the same content, just organized in different ways. For example, the Minor Prophets are 12 separate books in the Protestant Old Testament, but they are grouped together as one big book in the Tanakh. Now, Catholics and some other Orthodox religions, such as the Eastern Orthodox, have additional books as part of their Old Testament canon. And these are called deuterocanonical books by Catholics, but Protestants call them the Apocrypha. So the word Apocrypha has been used to refer to other books as well, which are outside of the biblical list. Um, so there's there's lots of different ways that the word Apocrypha has been used. Uh, for example, in the New Testament, there are New Testament apocryphal writings. But for the purpose of today's episode, when I use the word deuterocanonical or apocrypha, I am referring to the same set of books. So I can you could put an equal sign between deuterocanonical and apocrypha. It's the same ones. So for the Catholic Old Testament, there's seven extra books. It's Tobit, Baruch, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, and First and Second Maccabees. Now also. So there are, there are also additional parts of the books of Daniel and Esther. So that sort of makes up the apocryphal or the deuterocanonical books. So a few definitions. I've already mentioned this in previous episodes, but just to catch you up, canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N. It, so a boom cannon, like a gun, that is that has two ends in the middle. 
Uh, but canon with one N refers to a measuring rod, a ruler, or a standard. So Star Wars has a canon of certain books or movies uh, that are part of the true Star Wars story. And then they also have m many other non-canonical materials. And so some of these non-canonical materials may be enjoyable books for Star Wars fans, but they're not considered part of the true Star Wars canon. The same applies to the Bible. Protestants do not consider the deuterocanonical books as worthless so that they can they can give us some value, uh, some historical content. There's poetic praises of God, uh, but they are not considered as canon, as inspired word of God. And so the purpose of this episode is to give you some of the main reasons why Protestants reject these apocryphal books as being canon. So deuterocanonical literally means second canon, and these are the books I've been discussing so far, of course, and then proto-canonical means first canon. And this is a this is a word that is used sometimes to refer to the Hebrew Bible or the Protestant Old Testament and 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 part of the Catholic Old Testament. So it's all the books that that the Jews, the Protestants, and the Catholics all agree on. That's proto-canonical. And then apocrypha means hidden, and it's been used to describe a variety of books outside the biblical canon. Um, so again, just be careful when you if you're researching this further and you read the word apocrypha. Most of the time, it is talking about this set of Old Testament books that are kind of added to the Catholic canon, but sometimes it can be used in different ways. So just be careful with that. And then the last uh, little definition I'll give is the Septuagint. So again, I've talked about this before, but the Septuagint, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this translation is quoted a lot of times word for word in the New Testament. And so the, the current scholarly consensus is that the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church, because as Christianity spread throughout the Greek-speaking world, they, they use the Greek version of the Old Testament instead of Hebrew. Uh, so now that we've got some definitions out of the way, the Catholic Encyclopedia, which can be accessed for free at www.catholic.com, it says this regarding the Council of Trent's infallible decree, quote, being dogmatic in its purport, it implies that the apostles bequeathed the same canon to the church. Now, there's some big words in there, but basically the Roman Catholic Church claims to be the church started by Jesus' apostles. And so all the dogmatic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church claim to be doctrines which were handed down through the centuries directly from the apostles. That's important to understand. That's what the Roman Catholic Church is claiming. All of their dogmas they, they're not invented by the Roman Catholic Church hundreds or thousands of years later. They are claiming that all of these dogmas and infallible decrees were from traditions passed down directly from Jesus' apostles. And so the Catholic Encyclopedia goes on to say, the larger canon of the Old Testament passed through the apostles' hands to the church tacitly by way of their usage and whole attitude towards its components, an attitude which for most of the sacred writings in the Old Testament reveals itself in the new and for the rest must have exhibited itself in oral utterances or at least in tacit approval of the special reverence of the faithful. So again, kind of a wordy quote, but I want to give you the, the actual sources here. So the Roman Catholic Church is claiming their list of books, which should be included in the Bible, are infallible and that these books are the ones that the apostles passed down. 
And so they claim that the apostles considered all of the deuterocanonical books as inspired scripture. They believe that the Council of Trent's canon in 1546 was the exact set of books that the apostles considered scripture. So notice the, just to refer back to the quote I just gave you, notice this sentence. It says, for most of the sacred writings of the Old Testament reveals itself in the new, okay? That's talking about, this refers to books in the Old Testament which are quoted in the New Testament as scripture. And then the, the quote from Catholic Encyclopedia goes on, and for the rest, they must have exhibited the, themselves in oral utterances or at least in tacit approval. Basically, they have no physical, you know, Catholics have no physical proof that these other books were considered scripture by Jesus or the apostles, but nevertheless, the Catholic position is that the rest, they, they quote, must have exhibited them, itself in oral utterances. And so they must have. This is always the mindset of the Roman Catholic Church. Once the church declares something as infallible, history no longer matters. Evidence no longer matters. Disputes about which books should be included, even among popes and saints in the past, they no longer matter. The Roman Catholic Church says so, and therefore it must be true. That's the mindset of a, of a Roman Catholic. And so here's the main issue. This is a quote from Lexham Bible Dictionary uh, talking about the Apocrypha. It says this, Ultimately, much depends on where someone stands in the canonical circle. If canonization comes before the church, the evidence for the Apocrypha falls short. And that's what I'm going to demonstrate today. But if the church comes before canonization, then the Apocrypha may be faithfully considered canonical by segments of the church at large. Uh, basically, it's saying that if you believe that the church, like the Roman Catholic Church, is the authority and they get to decide what is scripture and what is not and whatever they say we have to go with, then of course you're going to fall on the on the side of the Roman Catholic Church. But if you're looking at historical evidence, evidence for including the Apocrypha in scripture falls short. So another way of kind of asking the question is, does the canon consist of the books the church passively received over time, or do we need an authoritative church to declare what is canon and what is not? Now, what did Jesus and the apostles consider to be inspired scripture? That's an important question as, as well. As always, you can connect with me at bearchristianity at gmail.com or uh, message me on Instagram at the real bear Martin. And this episode is sponsored by Breath Alert. Now that COVID mask mandates are disappearing across the country, have you lost all concern for your stinky breath? Introducing Breath Alert. Breath Alert is a small magnet, barely detectable, which attaches to the collar of your shirt. It senses your breath and alerts you by text message if your breath stinks. Don't be left alone wondering what is wrong. Bear Christianity listeners receive the bonus booger camera when they use the coupon code FUNKY. The booger camera alerts you when you have a little friend hanging out of the corner of your nose. Breath alert. Be normal as we try to get back to normal. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. Now, the issues regarding the inclusion or exclusion of the deuterocanonical books are extremely complex. So my goals for this episode is, is my goal is to give you a taste of why Protestants reject them and some of the arguments that Catholics may use in response. Uh, keep in mind, since the Council of Trent's infallible decree of what books are in the canon, a faithful Catholic has no choice but to accept Trent's canon. They cannot disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. If they do, the Council of Trent says, let them be anathema. So the Catholic 
has to look at the evidence, and no matter what, they must arrive at the conclusion that the Council of Trent declared. This infallible decree by Trent was after the Protestant Reformation rejected the Apocrypha books. Now, sure, there were church councils throughout history which considered some or all of the deuterocanonical books as scripture, but as you will see, there are plenty of significant people in the history of the Roman Catholic Church that rejected them. So I've I've got a few different reasons why Protestants and, and me personally reject the Apocrypha as being scripture. The first one is this. Reason number one, there were no prophets from God during the time the deuterocanonical books were written. So the Tanakh was written by chosen men of God, prophets. But after Malachi, there were no prophets for roughly 400 years until John the Baptist came on the scene. And all of the deuterocanonical books were written during this 400 years of silence from God. That is why John the Baptist was such a big deal to the Jews the first prophet in 400 years. So Jesus makes statements implying there were no prophets during this time. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus makes a scathing rebuke of the Jewish leaders. And these are the verses I closed last week's episode with. It's Luke 11, 49 through 51. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus says the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world and then sort of as a different way of saying that, because so you could kind of just, in the context of it, you could put an equal sign, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So who are these prophets, Abel and Zechariah? Abel brought a pleasing offering to God, and Cain killed him. And this is the first murder. This is recorded in Genesis 4. So Jesus refers to Abel as the first prophet. And then Zechariah was a prophet whose murder is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 24. And what's important about this is 2 Chronicles was the last book in the ordering of the Tanakh. So in the Protestant Old Testament, Malachi is the last book. But in the in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Bible Jesus was familiar with, the Tanakh, the last book is Second Chronicles. And the last prophet killed there is Zechariah. And so Jesus' statement is referring to the span of the whole Hebrew Bible. And I've consulted a bunch of different sources regarding this passage, and this is a well-accepted idea. And again, it's Jesus says, "...the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world." And then in the context, that is the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It's almost like Jesus is saying the same thing in two different ways. Now, I do need to add a side note here. I told you that this Apocrypha issue is very complex. Now, the verses I read were from Luke's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel contains the same basic saying of Jesus, but in Matthew's version, it says, Zechariah, the son of Barakiah. And this Zechariah is different than the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24 in name. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 24, it's the son of Jehoiada. Uh, now, some manuscripts do not include the son of Barakiah. So there's lots of different issues regarding this statement. And so um, lots of different ways to look at it. So it does get complicated. But it's not like this is the only evidence that Protestants have in rejecting the Apocrypha. I just wanted to bring up that verse or that, that quote from Jesus. Now, the deuterocanonical books admit that there were no prophets during the time of their writing. So I've just said that Jesus said there's no 
prophets, but now the deuterocanonical books, the apocrypha books themselves admit there were no prophets. In 1 Maccabees, well, the apocrypha book of 1 Maccabees, it gives this historical information about the Jews during the, the span of this 400 years before Jesus Christ's birth. And so in the context, the Gentiles have sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, and this defiled the altar. And so here's our verse, 1 Maccabees 4, 41 through 40, 46. Then Judas, and remember, this is all before Jesus Christ, before Jesus Christ. So Judas was a very popular name for the Jews. Um, it, Judas is not so popular of a name now because of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ. But anyway, so it says this, then Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law. And they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them and that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. In 1 Maccabees 9.27, this verse is describing a time where the, the Jews' leader, Judas, which I just mentioned, he's now dead and the new leadership was corrupt. And it says, 1 Maccabees 9.27, so there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. In 1 Maccabees 14.41, the Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Now, Josephus is a first century Jewish historian, and he's writing around 100 AD. In his book Against Appion, in its book one, section eight, he writes, for we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books. Remember, I said that the Tanakh is, is sometimes referred to as 22 books and sometimes 24. Those are very consistent numbers to refer to the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. So, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all past times, which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind. This interval of time was little short of 3,000 years. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their time in 13 books. Now, Artaxerxes was the Persian king, and this is that end quote, okay? <laughs> and then I just need to explain a few things. Artaxerxes was the Persian king who is the king during the time of the story of Esther. And so chronologically, Esther occurs at the end of the time of the prophets. And the final three prophets were Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. So Josephus then says, this quote continues, the remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So Josephus here is clearly listing off the 22 books he referred to earlier as being divine. There's five books of Moses. There's 13 books by the prophets. And remember, the minor prophets were all included together as one big book. And then four books containing hymns to God. So there you have it, 22. And he said, and then Josephus continues, it is true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes very particularly. So he's talking, now Josephus is talking about all the writings after Artaxerxes. And he says this, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. 
And so he's saying, since the time of Artaxerxes, other things have been written. This is, that, that's when he's talking about the Apocrypha books, but they are not on the same level as the books written before or, or up to the time of Artaxerxes. Because, and, and why was this? Because there was not an exact succession of prophets since that time. The Mishnah are Jewish writings which record the oral traditions of the Jews, and the Talmud involves various interpretations and discussions of the Mishnah. And in the Babylonian Talmud, it records this, When Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the latter prophets, were dead, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. And so Protestants are not just making things up when they say that there were no prophets during the the 400 years leading up to Christ. Jesus and his apostles were Jews, and they knew what was considered sacred scripture and what was not. And, And this leads me to our next point. If the apostles or Jesus considered the Apocrypha books to be scripture, then why don't they ever quote any apocryphal writing as scripture? So that's reason number two. The Deuterocanonical books are never quoted as scripture by Jesus or the apostles. So it's important to understand what I just said. The Deuterocanonical books are never quoted as scripture. So there is a a common form used by Jesus and the New Testament authors when they are referring to something as scripture. They usually say something like, uh, it is written, or as the Lord said, uh, thus says the Lord, or the Holy Spirit said, things like that. So as I mentioned before, the Deuterocanonical books contain historical information about the Jewish people, and, and there are some allusions uh, in the New Testament of historical events or even proverbial sayings that are found in the Deuterocanonical books, but they are never referred to as Scripture. Also, the book of First Enoch is mentioned in Jude, that's, a book, that's in the New Testament, but, it, but First Enoch is not considered part of the canon. So just because a book is mentioned in the New Testament does not mean it, it should be considered Scripture. Now, the Catholic rebuttal to this argument is that some of the Old Testament books are not quoted as Scripture in the New Testament either. Uh, The simple response is that many scholars believe the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. the Tanakh, was in its final form by 200 to 150 years before Christ. This consisted of three parts, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And in Hebrew, the word Tanakh is actually an abbreviation T-N-K, meaning Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And so for more information on on all this, just see episode 13 of this podcast, and it starts with the title, Old Testament Basics. Uh, Therefore, when Jesus and the apostles, when they refer to the law and the prophets, they are referring to a complete Tanakh as scripture. So there is a difference between the Deuterocanonicals and the Tanakh. The Tanakh is already considered scripture by Jesus and the rest of the Jewish nation. And so the Jews of Jesus' day rejected the Deuterocanonical books as scripture. They never quote them as scripture. Philo was a Jewish philosopher who was born before Jesus and died after Jesus. And he did not use the Deuterocanonical books as scripture, and neither did Josephus, the the first century Jewish historian. Also, the scrolls of the Tanakh were laid up in the temple as holy scripture. The Deuterocanonical books were not. So the next argument would be, well, the Jews rejected Jesus, so why should we listen to the Jews? Well, not all Jews rejected Jesus. Thousands became Christians at Pentecost, and Christianity spread by way of the Jews. Where did Paul go? First, when he entered a city, he went to the Jewish synagogues. And and also, Jesus was accused of violating a lot of Jewish customary laws, and the Jewish leaders hated him for it. He was constantly healing on the Sabbath, which in the in the Jewish leaders' mind, they thought he was breaking the Sabbath laws by doing a work. 
Jesus also claimed to be equal with God, the Son of God, the great I Am. And so he, he claimed to be able to forgive sins. All of these things were, were big controversies for the Jewish leaders. But not once do we have any record of Jesus arguing about the canon of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus actually held them accountable to know the law and the prophets. That was the common ground. Jesus could reason with the Jewish leaders from the Tanakh, and, 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 he, and Jesus quoted the Tanakh as the final standard in a lot of their debates. And so if Jesus thought the Deuterocanonicals were scripture, it's tough to imagine why they are never quoted as scripture and no arguments are ever mentioned between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Now, although it's not conclusive, if the historical consensus is that the Jews rejected the Deuterocanonicals as scripture, then I need something to overturn the evidence. I, I'm, I'm kind of like an NFL replay official. As I've tried to show, the ruling on the field is that the Jews of Jesus' day rejected the Apocrypha as scripture, and I see no evidence by which to overturn that ruling. Reason number three is that respected people and, and documents in Catholicism rejected the Apocrypha before the Council of Trent. Melito was the Bishop of Sardis, and in A.D. 170, he lists the books of the Old Testament canon, which matched the Protestant Old Testament except for Esther. None of the Deuterocanonical books are listed. Now, one side note is that Proverbs is sometimes called Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon, and there is an Apocrypha book called Wisdom as well. And so sometimes this can be confusing when looking at these canon lists. Uh, remember, though, for the Roman Catholic Church, their list by, by the Council of Trent is infallible. Therefore, they do not need evidence for just a few of the Apocrypha books being considered Scripture. They are claiming that their canon is the tradition passed down from the apostles of Jesus. They believe their canon was the same canon that Peter, James, John, and Paul all had in mind. So even if the Apocrypha you know, Book of Wisdom was in this list by Melito, it's still nowhere close to evidence that the entire Deuterocanonical books were considered scripture. The Apocryphal books were included with the Septuagint. This is probably one of the Catholics' biggest things that they'll try to point out. Um, the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, but the earliest Christian biblical manuscripts contained the fewest books of the Apocrypha. And up until A.D. 313, only Wisdom, then that's the Apocrypha Book of Wisdom, Tobit and Sirach are ever found in the, the Greek Septuagint manuscripts. So the first time we have evidence for the entire Apocrypha included with Old Testament writings is in the 4th century. Jerome, in 382, Pope Damasus I commissioned Jerome, uh, which is known by Catholics as Saint Jerome, so he, he's, a, he's not a bad guy, he's a good guy in Catholicism, Saint Jerome, uh, the Pope Damasus commissioned him to translate the Bible into a Latin text. So Latin had become the language of the Roman Empire, and the Pope wanted a reliable Latin translation. Now, the old Latin translation was a Latin translation from the Greek Septuagint, but Jerome was motivated to translate from the original languages. And so the original languages was, was Hebrew for the Old Testament. And so Jerome's translation would be called the Vulgate, which is Latin for common version. And, it, and, and the Vulgate is still the main Latin text of the Roman Catholic Church. And Jerome was one of the most brilliant scholars of his day. He knew Hebrew, Greek, and, of course, Latin. So when translating the Old Testament from the original Hebrew language, he realized certain sections of the Septuagint had been added and were not part of the Hebrew Bible. 
not wanting to include these books, yet instructed to include them by Pope Damasus I, Jerome prefaced these books by emphasizing they were not true parts of the Bible and called them Apocrypha. Therefore, the Vulgate is the official Latin Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, the same church which claims infallibly that the apocryphal books were included in the canon of Jesus and the apostles. Yet the man who gave them the Vulgate denied them as truly scripture. Now, it's not only Jerome. There are several prominent early church leaders which rejected the deuterocanonical books. Athanasius, Origen, and Gregory of Nazianzus are, are some of the notables in this category. And here's something interesting as well. Of the early church fathers who do quote some of the Apocrypha as scripture, none of them knew any Hebrew. Wayne Grudem, a Protestant theologian, said this in a podcast I was listening to on this subject. He says this, No early church father who knew Hebrew thought the Apocrypha should be included in the Old Testament canon. The Glossa Ordinaria was an extremely popular Bible commentary of the Middle Ages. The New Catholic Encyclopedia says this about the Glossa Ordinaria. So great was the influence of the Glossa Ordinaria on biblical and philosophical studies in the Middle Ages that it was called the Tongue of Scripture and the Bible of Scholasticism. Now, what's interesting is that the same Glossa Ordinaria, in its preface, agrees with Jerome on the Apocrypha in that they have value to the church, but are not authoritative in matters of faith. For the apocryphal books, the Glossa Ordinaria has a prefix which reads, Here begins the book of Tobit, which is not in the canon. Here begins the book of Judith, which is not in the canon, and so forth, for Ecclesiasticus, Wisdom, and Maccabees. And so it, it, it clearly says that these apocryphal books are not in the canon. And this was a well-accepted commentary of the Bible in the Middle Ages. Cardinal Kahatan, and, and so that's C-A-J-E-T-A-N, Kahatan, was a premier philosopher and, and theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, and he was known for defending the supremacy and authority of the Pope. He was made a cardinal by Pope Leo X. Now, you've heard him before. Leo X was the, was the Pope who authorized the sale of indulgences, which led to Luther's 95 Thesis. So a cardinal, by the way, is a senior member of the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church. Basically, it's a group of men just below the Pope, and they are responsible for electing new popes as well. Now, when Luther's defiance of Pope Leo X grew in popularity, it was Cardinal Cajetan which was sent by Pope Leo X to get Luther to recant. Luther, of course, did not recant, and the rest is history, but that's actually not the main point today. Cardinal Cajetan wrote a commentary on all the books of the Old Testament and dedicated it to the Pope. In this commentary, he explained that apocryphal books were not canonical in the strict sense and agreed with Jerome, saying, Here we close our commentaries on the historical books of the Old Testament. For the rest, that is, Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, are counted by St. Jerome out of the canonical books and placed among the Apocrypha, along with Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus. A little bit down, um, Cardinal Cahatan continues, and he, and he says this, talking about Jerome. Now, according to his judgment, these books are not canonical, that is, not in the nature of a rule for confirming matters of faith. Yet they may be called canonical, that is, in the nature of a rule for the edification of the faithful and being received and authorized in the canon of the Bible for that purpose. 
And so he he brings he brings out this distinction. He almost has like two canons. There's the the Old Testament canon, and then the Apocrypha books are are separate. They're not to be used to rule in matters of faith, but they can be used for general edification of the church. This is exactly how Protestants view the the Apocrypha books. And this brings me to another point. Roman uh, Roman Catholics will often try to say that the Council of Trent did not decide the canon in 1546 because the councils of Hippo and Carthage also affirmed the Apocrypha, and those were held at the end of the 4th century. However, these councils affirmed other books that were not contained in Trent's canon. And so there was not a uniform consistency, and initially the Apocrypha were only included because they were useful to the church. They were not included because they were considered on the same level of Scripture as the rest of the Old Testament. And so the Roman Catholic churches, think about this with, with Cardinal Cotan, the Roman Catholic church's representative against Luther did not consider the Apocrypha on the same level as the rest of the Old Testament. He said it was not to be used, quote, for confirming matters of faith. So Cahatan died 12 years before the Council of Trent, but it's hard to believe that this infallible decree of the Old Testament canon from the Council of Trent was not consistent with some of Roman Catholicism's most brilliant scholars just decades earlier. Now, I know I'm jumping out of order here chronologically, but I'm going back in time now. There is a, and, and there is a reason. My last witness against the Roman Catholic Church is actually one of their popes. Pope Gregory the Great was pope from 590 to 604 AD. And, and he was not some evil, corrupt pope, but rather he took a monumental role in organizing the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Pope Gregory is also a saint in Roman Catholicism, which is not something that's automatic for popes. I was reading there's, there's only like 30% of the popes which are also considered saints. And so, again, the Roman Catholic Church considers Pope Gregory the Great a good guy. In his commentary on the book of Job, Gregory writes this, "...with reference to a particular, we are not acting irregularly." If from the books, though not canonical, yet brought out for the edification of the church, we bring forward testimony. And then Gregory references 1 Maccabees 6.46. And so what's going on here is he's commenting on on Job, the book of Job, and he uses like an illustration or a reference from 1 Maccabees. But before he does that, he, he acknowledges that Maccabees is, quote, not canonical. And so if the councils of Hippo and Carthage were almost 200 years earlier, and they supposedly, as the Roman Catholic Church tries to proclaim, if they supposedly declared the same canon as as what Trent declared, then why would a pope not know that 1 Maccabees is Scripture? Shouldn't the pope know what is Scripture and what is not Scripture? And so in closing, as Luther and other reformers began to challenge some of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, what was the standard they could go to? Did they have to accept what the Roman Catholic Church said, or was there another authority by which the Roman Catholic Church should be held accountable? It was the Protestant Reformation which led to rethinking what is Scripture and what is not, and not rethinking it so much as trying to figure out what it had always been. Before this, people had grown accustomed to the Roman Catholic Church telling them what they needed to know. Looking back through history, the Protestants concluded the Apocrypha books were not on the same level of authority as the Hebrew Bible. The Apocrypha are not satanic or evil. They can be used for historical information or for general edification of the church, but they are not to be used as an infallible, inerrant source of truth from God. They are not theanoustos, which is the Greek term for God-breathed or breathed out by God. Our closing verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.